I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Happy New Year, and thank you for deciding to join me again in this new year of slow-mo. I hope that this year will be a year of ease and abundance, and a lot of wisdom for you. I hope that you found the time in the last few days or weeks to think about your new year and set your new year's intention, and I truly hope They were not just about losing weight and making money and all of those things that we are told are important, but in reality are not what matters most. I hope that you thought about what you owe yourself, your self-love, your self-care, your self-development, and of course your happiness. I hope that you thought about how you will give yourself the time in what promises to be one more year of rushing around to slow down. My 2021 New Year's intention have been set and clear for quite some time now. This is what I call my year of flow. It is the year when I will cultivate this wonderful feminine form of wisdom that allows us to let life itself guide us to where we're supposed to be not where we think we're supposed to be. More about that I will discuss in some of the episodes of this coming year of slow-mo. With a new year at hand, I thought it would be a good idea to venture into a bit of predictability after all of the uncertainty that 2020 had provided for us. And so I thought it would be a good idea to start with a futurist. My guest today is a best-selling author, a futurist, and a keynote speaker, and the first African to be a faculty member of Singularity University in San Francisco. John Sanai has a passion for psychology and technology. And when you bring those together, you come up with a future that is not just about what's going to happen in the world outside us, but also what could happen in the world inside us, in our own spiritual journeys. His intelligence, his thoughts, and his passion has taken him to engage with mega brands across the globe and to help them build the mental approach needed to make tomorrow more abundant than they have ever thought was possible. I hope we will be able to bring some of that thought to you today. John is a bit of a a machine of an author, really. In his first book, What's Your Moonshot? uh, He inspires the reader to ask bigger and bolder and more courageous questions about the future. In Magnetize, his second book, he invites the reader to focus on an elegant, conscious, and deliberate way of investigating what our future is will be. And I have not read his 2019 uh, book, which was Foresight. 
but I have actually read a review about Future Next, which is what he released in 2020. And so I invite you to sit back and think about our future together with my new dear friend, John Sanai. Before we begin, I want to update you that my conversation with the wonderful Joss Stone on her podcast, A Cup of Happy, is actually releasing on January 4th and January 11th, a two-part episode. Joss, as I may have told you before, is so lively, so curious, so funny. We chatted, we laughed, we had an incredible time to talk about happiness, and she is really true to her desire to make the world happier. So I hope you enjoy that. It's going to be split into two episodes released on January 4th and January 11th. Give it a try. You may actually enjoy it very much. Just own a cup of happy. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Thank you for taking the time. I have a confession to make. I normally prepare meticulously, but Alice told me, Alice is the one who introduced us, that it would actually be interesting to not. So I did cheat and prepare for a couple of hours, but I'm not as prepared as I normally am when I meet people because she said, you're going to take me on an amazing trip to the weirdest places. Well, Mo, look, I have been doing my research on you and uh, I'm incredibly impressed and inspired. And also, and we can chat about it today, but my latest book is all about empathetic activism. And it seems like we speak the same language, man. You know, my great grandmother's from Egypt. I'm Iranian, but I've got Egyptian blood. So when you say a brother from another mother with the same sort of trajectory and heart space, when I was listening to your interviews and listening, watching your talks, I was like, man, we're we speaking the same language, coming at it from totally different angles. Totally. I, I believe that to be so true. I didn't know, though, that you're from Iranian origin. I mean, so you live in Africa, right? Well, I was living in Dubai until COVID happened. And uh, now I live in Cape Town. Yeah, I'm, I'm back in Cape Town. But as soon as everything opens up again... Well, maybe I shouldn't say that because once everything opens up again, maybe things aren't like they used to be. Maybe the rules don't apply like they used to, right? Where are you in Dubai? Yeah, so I rented a tiny, the tiniest place I have ever rented in my life. That's another thing we share is essentialism. The disciplined pursuit of less but better. I love that. Did you call it essentialism? So minimalism is different. Yes. Because I have to admit to you, I did buy the best coffee machine on the planet. Yeah, that's not minimalist. No, no, that's essentialism. So I think minimalism's almost got this like stark approach, whereas essentialism has a level of simplicity and luxury, which I think is a very different approach, really, you know? I don't know if I call it luxury. I mean, let's align on this one. You know, I love my coffee. I don't want a fancy machine, but I want a very well-studied project of exactly what I need. So I, I need to be able to customize my coffee in certain ways because I love coffee. And so I don't buy a fancy machine. I stopped doing that a long time ago, but I buy a machine that allows me to do that. And that's the essential part in it. You know, it's almost the engineer's mindset of there is a utility to a coffee machine and the utility needs to be done right. You know what I mean? Yes. Especially as an engineer. I mean, the way you guys work and the way your brain works things out. That's, yeah. a, that's a very specific uh, way we, to look at things. We are a problem. Yes. I could never give up on that part of me, to be honest. It's 
funny because somehow when you enter engineering university, the first lecture is normally some kind of professor that says, well, it doesn't matter what we're going to teach you. All of you are going to come out thinking about the world in a specific way. And it's funny because I look back at every engineer I met, whether an electrical engineer, a computer scientist, whatever that is, we all do think about the world in a very specific way. It's like, how did they mold us that way? You know, you have yeah, to have a yeah. very accurate problem definition. You have to have a very accurate target. You have to define a path, then test it, then, you know, make it repeatable. It's a very unusual way, but very effective, I find. Very effective. It doesn't allow for spontaneity. And I oh, don't yeah. think it should. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I always say, like, engineers are there to make the bridge sturdy. Not look pretty. Not make it spontaneous, fun. but actually make the bridge work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, it's not the bridge is not about fun. It's about making people's lives work, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it is, believe it or not, my actual intention of 2021, I call this the year of flow. So spontaneity is going to be where I'm going. Well, that's so funny. You know, in my podcast, I do a, a session, what's your word of the year every year? Ah. And last year, my word of the year was fluidity. And this year, moving into 2021, it's symbiosis. And uh, similar to that, hmm, symbiosis, I got it from Dr. Zach Bush when he was describing how nature works and how COVID-19 is a virus that's coming to rebalance humanity. Whereas when you're on a farm and you spray pesticide on the ground, weeds come up to balance out the system and the soil. And this virus is a like a weed, to come and rebalance what is going on as humankind uh, manages to destroy ecosystem after ecosystem. That is an incredible observation. Actually, you're one of the few that I share this with you 100%. I actually did a post on Instagram where I said, is COVID-19 the virus or the cure? Because in a very, very interesting way, of course, it is hindering our way of life, if you want, but is our way of life the right way of life? Well, one other one phrase is uh, COVID is a gift wrapped in sandpaper. <laughs> I love that. Which it starts off as this virus, but really becomes a gift. Not taking away anything from people who have passed away, who have lost jobs and are on a breadline, but for people who have a certain level of privilege, this has been a fantastic cause I think we were all secretly desperate for. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, in my concluding episode of 2020, I was basically saying that if you've got sick yourself, if you've lost a loved one or if you've really lost your economic livelihood, then my heart's with you because that's very, very tough. But for most of us who are complaining, as they're listening to my podcast on their iPhone, safely in a nice, you know, a safe environment somewhere, the truth is we should be grateful. We should actually think of COVID-19 as, oh my God, the world is falling to pieces and we're okay. It's a very interesting, uh, different view. Well, you know, um, another thing, uh, I, sh I did shed a tear this morning listening. I'm even now feeling emotional about it. Um, you're losing your son. I, uh, I just wanted to say... Um, He's okay. I'm sure you have a view on death. I think we want to talk about that view. But let's start from the beginning. Let's start from the beginning. Yes. We were saying you're not really a futurist. What is a futurist? And why is it that you're so much more than a futurist? Thank you. So for me, a futurist is somebody who categorizes and contextualizes the future in a way that makes sense to decision makers and leaders. 
That's for me what futurists should be doing. Because leaders aren't able to make courageous decisions about a future that they don't understand. And so what they always fall back onto is the memories of success that they had. Uh-huh. And the memories of success become less and less relevant in a world that's changing dramatically. But what I did start off with my career as a strategist, and it evolved into becoming a futurist. But when I worked with organizations, you would work in an exciting, enthusiastic boardroom with execs that were very keen to change the world and change the organization. And everything would be high energy. I'd come back a year later and very little had changed. <laughs> and I started to realize that it wasn't about describing the future that was holding them back. And no matter how good my stories were, it really was about the human psychology that they were suffering from, the neuroplasticity that wasn't allowing them to think differently. And so I started diving deeper into human psychology and neuroplasticity and even into the study of quantum science and really start to realize that there isn't a future there are multiple futures. And in those multiple options, the thing that's getting you to develop or create or recalibrate a future is sitting inside here. And so I started diving deeper into that and saying, okay, well, what creates perspective? What creates perspective is narrative and memory. And so what creates memories and narratives? And so I started diving deep into that sort of section of the work because that really started to excite me because that's what's going to get leaders to change. It's not really explaining the future in more slides and more ways and more stories. So I've kind of combined what I call modern wisdom today. But what I've done is I've combined this ancient wisdom with futurism. And I want to combine them so that they don't seem airy-fairy, but really tool sets to say, look, are you living a life based on a set of memories from your past? Or are you living a life based on the vision of your future? And then give them an opportunity to create this future that they want, rather than saying, well, that's the future, get prepared for it. So it's this combo that I think has got my career to be, to really be in fast track. You say create the future that they want. I mean, the future is a mix of two things, really. It's a mixture of my impact, if you want the impact of all other beings and, and the universe itself. I mean, in an interesting way, there could be very little impact I could have on the part of my company, let's say, during a year where everyone is locked down. Of course, I can have impact noting that the world has changed, but the magnitude of the change was bigger than anything I could have ever created. So when you say create the future, what does that mean? It means the bubble that you are in. Is it a joyous bubble or is it a victim bubble? And within that bubble, what is your relationship like with money, with power? with self, with memory, with all the things that we drag with us from our past. And in that bubble, you can create a space of absolute joy no matter what's going on outside. And so I know I've seen this in my world is that certain people never make money no matter what's going on in the economy. And certain people <laughs> make money no matter what's going on in the economy. Absolutely. How, how do you explain that? And how is it that some people always find themselves in abusive relationships and other people don't? And how is it that we continuously repeat these patterns. So when I say create the reality you want, there is so many options of reality that have abundance in them or don't have abundance in them, have collaboration in them or have competition. In them. And we drag our past with us. And I think that's the crux for me is that, yes, you can create. Look, I've had an incredibly successful COVID-19. And as a keynote speaker and as a strategist, not many of my colleagues have, have had a successful one. I have. 
but I've done an extensive amount of self-work and self-reflection on developing this responsibility or the ability to respond to a situation like this. I adore that statement. I actually believe we are much more in charge than we give ourselves credit for. Like it's the background of a of an improv, if you want. The universe will give you Eiffel Tower and you're going to have to improvise in your act and maybe speak a little bit of a French accent. But after that background, the rest is up to you. The rest is your Absolutely. engagement. Yeah. I wrote about, in, in my third book, I wrote about my neighbor who lived one floor above me. And whenever I spoke to him, he spoke to me about the drug world in Cape Town. And he told me about all the things that were happening on the streets and the police and the chaos. And Mo, I've got to tell you, I've never seen any of those things. I was living a life that was totally different. I was one floor away from him. Same building, same area, one floor. And he was living in a war time zone mindset. And I was living in a flowing, fluid sort of mindset. It's so interesting. So yeah, it, it really is personal choice. And it's those filters that we apply that not only give us the perception, but also dictate almost every action that we take. And so you understand that as a futurist, you focused on the external where the real change comes internal. And I think that many execs never even think about it like that. Many execs are carrying on in the indoctrination, in the doctrine of growth. And they've been so indoctrinated into that idea of growth over everything else that they've become an undisciplined pursuit of more over anything else and not even realizing they're doing it. They're almost stuck in a moral breaking down of what boardrooms do to people. You know, you see it left, right, and center. So eye-opening. I think that's not only execs. I think it's people in general. So there are people that basically look at life as it's me against life. It is entirely difficult all the time. And there are others that think this is me and life. And life is always helping me out. So that's, uh, I call that the survivor consciousness trigger point. And what happens to us is our survivor um, sort of reaction or instinct is triggered either into a drama triangle or a creator triangle. The three characteristics of the drama triangle are victim, poor me, I can't believe this is happening to me, angry, I'm angry with the world, I'm angry with the government, I'm angry with whoever, and then the sympathetic person who sits on their couch and feels sorry for the world. So what you can do is once you realize those characteristics like got you stuck in a drama triangle, you then start to realize what are the other alternate options you have. And so from victim, you can move to creator. Where are the opportunities? From sympathy, you move to empathy. Instead of feeling sorry, I can empower. And from anger, you can move to challenger. And so once you become aware of these characteristics, you can then now start to change them. So these are very personal situations. Let me start with... I think there has been never a year with an opportunity to learn like 2020. And so you started with, you called it the year of fluidity. How fluid was it for you? <laughs> well, actually very fluid, um, which is quite funny. I'm living on top of the ocean here in Cape Town. And actually my friend of mine Instagrammed me and said, do you realize that your word for the year was fluidity and you're living on top of the ocean, which I wasn't at the beginning of the year. I was living in Dubai. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Um, and also the whole movement out of Dubai and back into Cape Town was a very fluid process. So yes, it was fluid. I took a few days to mourn my future memories, which I think many people haven't really, you know, um, many people are still stuck on the five, you know, the five stages of mourning anything, you know, the denial, anger, bargaining, grief, and acceptance. Yeah. 
Yeah. But we often don't think about them when we think about losing our future. And so mourning our future memories is something that took me a couple of days to do. And once I got to acceptance, it was quite fluid. You know, once uh, I got to that space, uh, it was quite fluid. Man, hold, hold on, hold on. There are like 16 topics that you just put on the table that we have to talk about. <laughs> okay. What are future memories? What do you mean by future memories? So memories don't have time attached to them. You know, our brains don't know if your memory is from the past, from the now, or from the future. They don't know. That is so profound and so freaking true. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So when you go through a breakup and a divorce, what do you do? You mourn the future house you're going to buy with each other. You mourn the future kids you're going to have with each other. You're going to mourn the future holidays you're going to have with each other. So those are future memories that you had, future projections and expectations into reality. And so now what happens is that humanity as a whole had their futures canceled, postponed, or just canceled. You know, the future was canceled. So what most people did was they were desperate for normality. And what that means is that they haven't accepted that the future is gone. And they're desperate for this abusive normal that they only knew as familiar. It wasn't good. It was just familiar. And so really what we have to do is understand that the only way you can catalyze yourself to create something new is to go through those five stages and give yourself the luxury of time to mourn, to go through denial and anger and bargaining and grief and sit in those and stew in those for a while to get yourself to a catalyst place to move forward. Go on. I'm not stuck. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, no. well, that's it. You know, so my year was fluid. And I think it's because I've been able to understand the neuroplasticity of change. I've been speaking about it a lot and even within myself. And I think that both of us have created a life of essentialism or minimalism, which gives us an automatic opportunity to be in flow or fluid or in symbiosis. Yeah. 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 So future memories are actually not lived in the real world, they are just created in the brain. I actually would probably say past memories are the same. So your memory is never really what happened. It's just what happened inside your head, right? Our reality are subjective stories we've decided to hold on to, to make sure our identity stays alive. That is so true. <laughs> so if you're a woman that was abused by a man when she was younger, all men are abusive. You're dragging that memory with you. And I'll give you my example. Actually, my own example is an aha moment for me. You know, my dad was a violent man with us and with the family. And when we were, I was eight years old, my mom grabbed my brother and I and we left home and we escaped him. And for 32 years of my life, I hated him. I detested him for what he had done to my family, to my mom and my brother and I. And I carried this real deep hatred for him. But what happened because of holding on to that old story is that pretty much every man I came into contact with, and I'm not gay, I mean, man in business or friendships was abusive, just like my dad, because subconsciously oh, wow. I'd held on to that story. And so what happened when I turned 40 and I went through a divorce, which was really painful, I decided to rethink everything and I decided to forgive my dad. And I went through a process of forgiving my dad and immediately I have no abusive alpha males around me. So immediately my engagement and attraction to certain types of characters dissipates when I am able to heal that subjective story that I'd held on to. Now that, to be able to do that on your own is actually quite remarkable. I mean, people would go through therapy for years and years and years to try and find that trigger. So how would you do that? How can any of our listeners now say, okay, I need to go back in my past and find those trigger points and maybe make peace with them. So there's two types of memories. There are memories that make you feel good 
and there are memories that make you feel bad. And so you have to become honest with you and say, well, the memories that make me feel bad are really my projection onto those memories. And so how can I change those memories? How can I become empathetic to the people in those scenarios rather than me being staying angry with them? And so with my father, I had to realize that he came from an abusive family. And as a Middle Eastern man in Iran, who's doing psychology for men, you know, in Egypt? <laughs> who's running around asking men to cry and hug and hold themselves accountable? There's yeah. no such thing. So culturally, my dad didn't have an opportunity to heal. So seeing that empathetically for what it is and to see me as a role playing within that space gave me an opportunity to see it more objectively and less subjectively. So I think the trick is for your listeners is which memories make you feel good and which memories make you feel bad. And then take those bad ones, write them down, break them down, and try and see it from that person's perspective. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's something called Ho'oponopono. I don't know if you know. It's a Hawaiian methodology to heal your life, really. It's an ancient Hawaiian methodology brought about in the 1970s, was discovered by the Western world because there was a very violent mental asylum in Hawaii that was losing staff. They couldn't keep up because it was just such a bad place to work. And after losing most of its staff, the medical director phoned up Dr. Lang, a local elder in the Hawaii, and said to him, look, we don't really believe in the stuff you do. We're a medical center, but we need help. We're in a desperate place for help. And Dr. Lang went and started helping them. And within 18 months, the whole clinic has closed because everybody was healed. And when people started to hear about this, wow. the American press descended onto Dr. Lang and onto this clinic. And they asked him what he had done. And he said, well, look, there's a simple process. You know, it's called Ho'oponopono. And they're like, well, what's Ho'oponopono? He says, well, there's two rules to Ho'oponopono. The first rule is I am 100% responsible for my reality and my projection. My reality echoes back to me what I am putting out into the world. And if you're able to heal your projection What's coming back to you is automatically healed because that's the law of the universe. And so there's four key phrases that you can say to your reality. The one is, I'm sorry, taking responsibility for what you've done in the process. Please forgive me for how they have felt because of what you've done in this process. Thank you for giving me this lesson. And I love you because you're just another human being doing your best. And so when you're able to practice Ho'oponopono on people that have upset you or hurt you or memories that are hurtful, you get to give this opportunity to release it. And so if we come back to futurism, and if you think about this, is that if you're carrying these negativity, and now I want to tell you about drones and AI and blockchain, who the hell cares when you're dragging these memories from the past with you? It's just you're going to keep creating the same sort of emotional turmoil that you're bringing with you. This is spot on. I've just actually, I'm putting the final touches to my third book and it's called Scary Smart. It's about AI and how AI is coming to really, really play a very active role into our life. And the idea for me is that I started the book by writing about the horror stories. It could actually go very wrong. You know, futurist or not, there are some facts, I call them the three inevitables, that AI will happen, it will be smarter than us, and it's probably some things will go wrong. And then around midway through the book, I was like, I shouldn't write this. I'm a happiness guy. I'm not supposed to tell the world that everything is going bad. And then suddenly I realized, and it was a very simple but profound statement to me that changed the trajectory of the whole book, that nothing is wrong with technology. That technology in itself is actually just magnifying who we are. It is 
the projections, as you rightly said, that we put on AI that will create either a vicious AI that wants to, you know, get the best of us or an AI that is friendly and loving and exactly projecting what we want to see in the world. You know, so when you say this, it's actually quite interesting to see that we are actually creating not only our present, but also our future by making those choices. Well, this is also what I love about what your work is, is that if we don't focus on happiness, AI is going to start copying our craziness. And totally. so that's what I love. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's your totally. mission, right? And I love that mission. You know, I'm 100% on board. When I heard you say that in one of your interviews, I was like, oh my God, because you said in one of your talks, you're like, this is the most important thing we could be doing. And I was like, seriously, the most important? And then I started listening to it. I was like, oh my God, this is the most important thing because AI could actually turn around and kill us because of our own psychotic behavior. Absolutely. I mean, we, we're just giving it enough patterns to recognize that humans, they want to bully each other. They're narcissistic. They want to make each other feel bad. And so it will go like, okay, mommy and daddy want that. Let's give them that. Let's make their life miserable if you want. But again, let's go back before we lose that beautiful thread about the idea of, first of all, what you said, which I think is so eye-opening, John, is we tend to focus on the good memories. So when we sit down with ourselves, we remember the time when we were sitting there sipping a coffee in front of like this beautiful view with this wonderful person. We sort of avoid and even sometimes bury those negative memories really deep in the subconscious. And what you're saying is find them find them and write them down and say, I remember that moment and that moment annoyed me. So this is a first phase, a first step. And then step two is, okay, that moment that annoyed you is probably going to be because of another person. And, you know, when I interviewed Edith Ager here on this uh, podcast, which was a Holocaust survivor, incredible being, 92 years of age. And she basically said, I love them. And I said, what do you mean? She was talking about the Germans that actually put her in the camp. And I said, what do you mean, Edith? And she said, well, if I was born German and I was told that we will take over the world and I was convinced like they were, I would be exactly like them. And that is exactly the summary of what you're saying. Can you find it in your heart to say, well, there is part of it that is my responsibility, but I forgive you for what you've done. And I actually am willing to empathize with whatever it is that led you to do this to me and then move on, move on with life so that you can let this grief process out of your life, right? Well, I think that you said the key word there is empathy. I mean, empathy is a sign of progression on your consciousness. And so with the more empathy you have for the world, which means that you're vibrating at a higher space so you can see the process differently rather than being stuck in it. I think the great analogy is if you're playing a soccer match and you're on the field, you're within the matrix. But the minute you come and sit on the stands, you can see the game for what it is. And that's what empathy is, is really starting to see how all the players are making the whole. And you're part of the game. You know, you've also done your own fair share of stuff to people that are upset with you. And so, you know, we've also got to take responsibility for those things. So really, ultimately, it's like, Look, what sort of future do you want? Do you want it to be similar to your past or do you want it to be better? And if you want it to be better, the responsibility is on you to take those memories and to dissect them and to work with them. But look, I'm also a student of uh, a shamanic work. So I've done an extensive amount of South American shamanic work with shamans. How much time do you have in a day? <laughs> Not as much as you, because I mean, don't talk about, I mean, I've also watched what you get up to. 
No, seriously, it's like, what, what is up with you? Okay, okay, go ahead. I'm just adding my new best friend to my list of things. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Shamanic, tell me about that. So shamanic work has been this uh, crossover between the other world and this world. And something that's been quite alive in South America with Native Americans, with ancient tribes who've had shamanic work with them for the longest of time. And what has happened in our Western world, we see that as weird. We see it as taking drugs. We've categorized this in a way that doesn't give us access to it calmly. But about 15 years ago, I decided to start really diving into my self-development. And I came across ayahuasca, San Pedro, Ibogaine. These are all plants that have been with us for millennia. But these shamans have understood that within certain ceremonies and the way they are cooked and digested, what they give us is access to our subconscious. And in the process of these ceremonies, you get an opportunity to revisit who you are in your purest form. And you'd be reminded of who you are and the stories that you're holding on, which aren't actually serving you. So as much therapy as I've had, I've also had a lot of work with subconscious work, which is usually brought about by plants and shamanic ceremony. So those are important. When you say connect to the other world, what is the other world? Where, where we come from. The world that, I say this like, you know, our souls are 90% in the other world and 10% in our bodies. And our soul's still up there and watching parts of us do what we need to do. And you, when you pray, you're praying for God and you're praying for angels and you're praying for your soul to fill you more. And the more work you do on yourself, the more of your soul you carry within yourself. But that's, I mean, by science, that your soul is just an illusion, basically. There is nothing called the soul in science. Well, I'm not a scientist, so that's why <laughs> I love science. that. <laughs> <laughs> And look, science can say a whole bunch of things. I am a better man for doing the shamanic ceremonies. I have healed a lot of things. I'm able to forgive somebody who was violent towards my mom, my brother, and I. This is all because of the shamanic work, not because of science. So the soul in that case is available somewhere, you say, 90% out of this physical form, and I can connect to it. And when I connect to it, I can see, like you said, from a perspective where I'm not in the field, I'm not in the matrix, I can see a bigger picture. Is that how it works? Well, for me, uh, we are light beings. And the more light you can carry, the brighter you are, and the further you can see. And how do you carry more light? Through breaking addictions, through constant meditation, prayer, and convening with uh, whatever you believe it to be out there, God, angels, spirits, whatever it may be. And what happens is when you start to incorporate this sort of work into your daily life, you almost don't have to forgive anybody, which is the weirdest thing, because all that starts to happen is you fill up with so much light, your perspective starts to change that those hooks that those situations had within your being start to fall away, start to become pointless for you to carry on with. So there's a great guy, Dr. Joe Dispenza, he says, don't try and forgive anybody. Just do the work to hold more light and those people will fall off. They just will fall off. They'll become irrelevant. It's so interesting. When you were talking, I actually was thinking about my own self and I hold nothing against no one almost. I mean, like there are a, a few, maybe two or three people I was like, yeah, that wasn't nice. But I actually don't feel that anyone, I think it's mainly because of what you said. It's, I understand fully that I too have done harm to others. 
And I hope to be forgiven, so I might as well forgive them if you want. I myself have gone through life ignorant, if you want, right? Because nobody wakes up any morning and says, hey, I'm going to wake up and annoy a few people today. It's not a a hobby of anyone. It's basically, I'm going to try to do my best with the information that I have, and it might actually end up annoying others. So let's talk about symbiosis, because that's a wonderful view of 2021. And I'd like you to maybe start by saying, where do you think 2021 is going as a futurist? Well, I do think that we are in a cycle. I don't know if you know a book called The Fourth Turning. It was written in the 90s by the same gentleman that created the archetypes around generations that we uh, speak about often. The baby boomers, the Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, these gentlemen came up with these archetypes. And in their book, The Fourth Turning, they talk about these 80-year cycles that humanity goes through. They track them back to the 1600s. And so we are at the end of an 80-year cycle. And we are seeing the death and destruction of all the pillars of things that we trust in. Think about education, religion, governments, socioeconomic systems, economics, all of these things that we trusted wholeheartedly. The world's all going, hang on a second, that politician's not telling the truth. That economic system doesn't make any sense. I don't know if I want to buy into the religious uh, ideas I used to have. And education doesn't make sense to me anymore. Whereas if you think about our parents, those were 100% things that you never questioned. In fact, you wouldn't question them because society would look at you weirdly. Now we're seeing the death and destruction of all those things. So I don't know if it's a 2021 thing, but I think we're still in for a few more years of the death and destruction of those structures, the implosion of them. And if you go back 80 years, you'll know that we ended that 80-year cycle with World War II the death and destruction of that old world. And what happened in the early 1950s, we saw the UN get developed, the IMF get delivered, and all the new structures that the baby boomers put into place to build this new world away from that world war ideology. And if you see what's happening now in the world, we have this new generation, this Gen Z, challenging the idea of success that was developed by the baby boomers. The best description is Mitch McConnell against Greta Thunberg. And all they are doing is fighting for the definition of success. Because Mitch McConnell, in his mind, is doing what he thinks is success. And Greta Thunberg is saying, are you crazy? That's not success. That's terrible. But Mitch McConnell can't see it differently because he's from that generation. So it's not a prediction for 2021. It's a prediction for the next few years to say, look, we're still in this. We are in the ending, the implosion of everything we trusted. But be sure that we have a renaissance coming. And be sure that we have spring on its way. We just have to be able to lay low, stay minimalist over the next few years while we prepare for what's coming. And so you say a spring coming is not what a lot of people believe because there are futurists that say doomsday is coming. Well, I think this is the doomsday. This is the idea of doomsday because everything that we trusted is going away. That's doomsday. Everything we thought we were driving for. I mean, just think about ambition, Mo. You know, we had this idea that being a winner at life was making as much money as possible and buying as many things as possible. That was the old idea. And today, here you and I are pretty successful in our lives with the smallest apartment, with the most minimalist and essential idea. And already we started to see that that old idea of success has shifted for us. And that is doomsday for me. But also let's remember that we have a breaking up of humanity. For me, what we have since 2016 is a very, very 
clear picture between people that are driven by fear and people that are driven by love. And uh, we're going to be having an advent of digital dictatorships and blockchain democracies. So I don't think there's one future of doomsday. I think some people will have a terrible reality and some people will have a joyous one. It's really for us to choose. In an interesting way, what you're saying is just like the cycle of life and death, you know, the end of that last cycle is the beginning of a new one. So sort of like this is the end of the beginning or so the beginning of the end, maybe? So transformation has three stages, the sad, the strange, and the adventure. And right now <laughs> okay. we're, in the, we, we're in the sad. We're in the sad and strange. We're in between sad and strange. Sad because we have to let go of the world that we once knew, our comfort zones, our ideas of success. And then we arrive at no man's land where nothing makes sense. There are no anchor points. Nothing is familiar. And this is the strange land that we're in. And what comes after a strange land? A new adventure. And so, of course, a new adventure will arrive and a new way for us to start dealing with the new world will arrive. But I think that's 2025, 2026. I don't think it's now. And what happens between now and then? We're still in the sad and the... Strange. It's strange. It's strange. For me, it's in the cocoon phase. We're in the cocoon phase for the next few years mm. for us to start redesigning. It is weird for me because I actually think that the strange is an adventure in itself. Absolutely. I mean, in a very interesting way, it's like, you know what? Since when did we want life to be monotonous and predictable? It's, it's actually a lot more fun. You know, I'm a, I'm a video gamer. I heard your TED talk about life is not a game and, and I loved the way you ended it. But the idea is for me as a gamer, I actually like a little bit of unpredictability. It gets me sharp. It gets me focused. It gets me to actually be here and present and realize what's happening rather than lay back and do nothing, right? Expect tomorrow to be like today, if you know what I mean. So would you believe that this is something that we should also enjoy or are we just waiting for the adventure? Well, look, um, there's a great saying that says when nothing is certain, anything is possible. Mm. And when you're able to practice that, it shows your level of consciousness. It shows your level of fitness emotionally. But also remember that the world that we come from made us addicted to certainty. Yeah. Every business out there had five-year plans and efficiency, efficiency over everything else. And that was the, the, the addiction to predictability. And so, yes, those people are in a very sad place. You and I have been able to get out of that loop and get into this essential minimalist lifestyle, showing that we are ready for this new adventure already. Other people are still grappling. You know, they're still holding on to those old ideas of success and they're taking a lot of strain. So I think you and I aren't the norm, to be honest. I think there's many, many more people that are still stuck. I'm surprised though, because I felt that last year was really a privilege for me because it was a year of reflection. But you're actually bringing up another interesting point. It's because, because of my nature not to hold on to things in general, I did not feel much loss. As I said, if I haven't, I have been diagnosed myself and it was tough, but you know, I recovered. I haven't lost a loved one and I, I'm okay. I can continue to survive. So when you think about it, to me, there was really nothing else I could hold on to. You know, I had to leave the UK when I was locked down there and, you know, I had to go to Canada for a while and I loved it in Canada next to my daughter, but I had to travel again. And none of those were things that I held on to and said, oh, come on life, you know, I'm looking for some stability here. I'm not really, I'm, it's wonderful to 
to be able to breathe every day and see new people and nothing to hold on to. And I think that probably is one of the things to highlight to people about 2021. It's whatever it brings, you can make it amazing, right? Absolutely. And that's the whole point of this. This new book that I'm writing is about empathetic activism. It's really about saying, look, you've got a limited time here on earth. Realize that everything you do makes you an activist. Can you become an empathetic activist, which says, I'm not worried about me, I'm worried about we, which means that I'm able to become part of this new renaissance and become an active member of it. And that becomes a very, very clear personal choice that we have. And maybe many people don't even think it's a choice. And I think that's what your and my mission is, is to try and alleviate fear and bring that sort of perspective onto people. I heard you once talk about what you called hindsight, foresight, and insight. No, hindsight, plain sight, insight, and foresight. That was my last book. Yeah. Yes. Should I talk about those? Sure. Yes. That was really, really, really key for me. And you're not saying one is better than the other, are you? No, what I'm saying is, okay, so let me explain what they are first. Uh, hindsight is living in your past. And I've explained that already. Many people are. They were repeating memories. Plain sight is people that don't believe in quantum science, but believe in Newtonian science. They think the world's happening to them, not for them. When you understand quantum science, you know that your perspective is creating your reality. Newtonian science doesn't give you that power or that responsibility. And it's usually the older generation that are stuck in plain sight. Then you get insight, which are people that have got incredible levels of knowledge but very low levels of wisdom. And these are the people that have got all the doctorates and all the degrees in the world, but find it very hard to change. And because they're stuck in the old idea of what success looks like with insight. Foresight is the mixture of wisdom and curiosity. And what is wisdom? Best described by Alan Watts, he said, the knowledgeable man has to learn something new every day, but the wise man has to unlearn something new every day. I love that. It's the unlearning that makes you wise. Unlearning. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you think about wisdom, it creates a clean slate for you to build on. Curiosity, on the other hand, takes logic and ego out of the equation and says to you, what makes you most excited and follow that thread, only that thread. Because we realize that logic is not going to get us out of this uncertain world. Only joy, curiosity, excitement will. And so in the book, I describe that you know when you have touched on your curiosity when time disappears. When time disappears, it's a good sign that you're doing what you're here on earth to do. As the great saying goes again, is that the two most important days of your life are when you're born and when you find out why. And when you find out why, time disappears. And so now you mix wisdom and curiosity and now you have foresight. And what foresight gives you is this incredible skill that every single human being has in the world to connect the invisible dots that only you can see and nobody else can. And this becomes your superpower in a world of quantum science that we're moving into and a world of uncertainty. So when you talk about the difference between the world of Newtonian physics and the world of quantum, I think we need to explain that to people a little bit. So in Newtonian physics, there are laws. You drop a pebble and the pebble will go down along the lines of gravity. But in the quantum world, you actually create your own reality. Now, explain that because I won't let you get away with it. I'm a great engineer. I've just got myself into trouble. But let me, uh, <laughs> let me tell you in very layman's terms. <laughs> so Newtonian science is, says, for me, and this is my perspective again, says that for every action, there's a reaction, mm -hmm. right? That's Newtonian science. 
Quantum science says that everything you do is the action and the reaction molded into each other. It's like you are creating the reality as you're going. You don't have to almost wait for feedback. You are the feedback. It's almost like taking the responsibility away from the reality just happening around you to you actually creating every single part of that reality. It's a much bigger responsibility. And it's a much bigger power, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, the idea of I'm going to react to everything and everything's going to react to me is different than I'm going to create everything, which, by the way, is, is something I can't prove with science, but I can prove with endless measurements that, you you know, even simple things that when you put your mind to something, you're much more likely to make that thing happen. And even at the deeper level of physics, that's actually true in the uncertainty explanation of quantum physics. But the idea of I am in charge, I can make things what I want them to be it takes us back to where we started, which is I'm creating the future. I'm not waiting for the future to happen to me. Yeah. If we think about our evolvement as humanity, we went from agricultural times to industrial times to quantum times. I call them quantum times. There's different names for this. But if you think about it, the most important thing we could have in agricultural times was our, our muscles. The most important thing we could have in industrial times was our intelligence a way to solve problems. The most important thing in quantum times is intuition. It's changing what parts of our brains and bodies we need to utilize to be able to work through things. And this world that we're moving into is intuition, and intuition is much more linked to quantum, whereas Newtonian is much more linked into intelligence. It's almost a linear process, the Newtonian process, whereas quantum is a multi-adaptive, multi-processed system in itself. And this takes us to the sort of idea of the difference between complicated and complexity. I don't know if you know about this sort of uh, this work. So the world we come from is a complicated one, and the world we're moving into is a complex one. And the big difference is a fundamental difference is that in the complicated world, what we had were patterns that repeated themselves. So in a world that patterns repeat themselves, you could use mathematics, automation, accounting, and Excel spreadsheets to work yourself out of problems. But in a complex world, you have patterns that don't repeat themselves. So you can't use the old way of logical thinking to work yourself out of a problem because it just will break down. And so the best example I can give you is when you get to an airport and you put your suitcase on the conveyor belt, your suitcase gets to you on the plane in the most complicated, efficient manner because there's patterns that repeat themselves behind the scenes to get your suitcase to you. But once you get onto the plane, you're now not in a complicated world anymore. Now you're in a complex world because you have no idea what's going to happen to you when you're up in the air. So what have they done? They've designed a plane with four engines when one is enough, with three pilots when one is enough, with five operating systems when one is enough. Because when you don't know what's coming at you, you must prepare for all eventualities. And so the world we're moving into must move away from the economies of scale and start to focus on the economies of learning moving away from efficiency to robustness. And this is intuition versus logic. That is fascinating. And why is it that you then choose symbiosis as your New Year's intention for a world that is going in that direction? What does symbiosis have to do with it? So symbiosis for me says to me, I can be ambitious and carefree, that I can focus on what I want, but be more elegant in my approach. And it's this symbiosis with reality where I dance with reality rather than must have, should do, must work, must grind, must hustle. Those things are very masculine, where symbiosis for me has a marrying of masculine and feminine. 
it's much more of a dance than a ambition like it used to be designed. I am in your exact same place. So did I mention at the beginning that I bought a very sophisticated coffee machine and that I make the best coffee owners? Yes, yes. When are you coming back to Dubai, John? I need you here next to me, man. <laughs> we could spend hours and hours talking. I mean, Love it. yeah, I need a notepad. I will listen to this again and write those things down. Come over, man. I will do. Cape Town is nice, but who, who wants you there? I need you here. Look, uh, firstly, my invitation to you to come to Cape Town because Cape Town is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. But I will be back in Dubai. I love Dubai. It's my second home. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to coming back, actually. I'm not sure when, you know. That's absolutely fine. Once you're back, your first task as you touch down is to text (laughs) me, please. I am so, so, so grateful I got introduced to you. I think you and I can can really, really change the world together. You're an amazing Thank human you. Being. I would love that. Incredibly, incredibly intelligent. Very, very insightful. I'm really grateful for all the wisdom that you shared. And I'm sure most of my listeners will absolutely love this. Some of them will go like, what was he talking about? But uh, <laughs> in any case, I'm very, very grateful for your time, John. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mo. Thank you so much. Ciao. That to me was incredible. I I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I didn't expect that because as I said at the beginning of this episode, I didn't actually prepare very well to talk to John, but it blew me away in so many ways. I hope it did impact on you too. With this, I say 2021 is in your hands. It's the ability for you to take charge and to plan what you want your life to be. I love the exercise of sitting back and forgiving. Look back at the memories that are holding you back and and let them go. And uh, yeah, I like the idea of symbiosis. It's similar to my year of flow. It's being able to go on with life rather than against life. So wish me luck. I wish you a wonderful new year. And uh, yeah, please find me on social media and tell me what you think. I'm Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram. Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, M Gaudet on Twitter, and Mo.Gaudet.Official on Facebook. Also, please do me a favor and spread the word on Slow Mo. We're doing incredibly well, and we could continue to go further. So please tell your loved ones, rate the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. And yeah, join me twice a week, every Sunday and Thursday. And uh, remember that regardless of how much is on your agenda, a million little things that you have to do, there is always, always a little bit of time to slow down. I thank you for giving me the alibi to record those wonderful conversations. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.